also the fact that I used to wear Tom to frat parties. Welcome to the 11th installment of Feminist Fiends and Quarantine Queens, a podcast where we analyze female representation in popular culture. I'm Pate. I'm Nellie. And I'm Quinn. As a reminder, please continue to stay engaged in social justice issues across our nation and around the globe. Whether it be standing up against racial inequality or police brutality, writing your senators to challenge ICE, or raising awareness for and donating to the humanitarian crisis in Yemen, there are so many causes out there that deserve our attention and support. Please stick around to the end of the episode to hear a few new ways to get involved and get active. On today's show, we're unpacking The Other Woman, written by Melissa Stack, directed by Nick Cassavetes, and starring Cameron Diaz, Leslie Mann, and Kate Upton. We all have quite a few thoughts on this somewhat lovable yet also problematic film, and we're excited to delve into it with this week's guest, Dela LaRock. Woo! Dela is a politics scholar, a graduate of Swanee's Carey Fellows program, genuinely one of the smartest and most ambitious people I've ever met, and she can also do the worm. We're so grateful to have her on today. Welcome, Queen. Thank you guys so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. I've been listening to you guys on my runs the past few weeks, so can't wait to listen to myself next week. We love it. Dela's a big, big athlete. <laughs> so glad you're here, Queen. Yes. Um, just a quick plug, please do not forget to subscribe to our show via Spotify. It is a quick and easy way to make sure you never miss an episode. Heck, if you're listening right now, you're already on the app, so go ahead and click the follow button. Also, we'd love to connect with you and hear what you'd like us to discuss next. The best way to reach us is to follow us on Instagram at Feminist Fiends and reach out to us in the comment section or you can slide into our DMs. Now that the shameless self-promotion is out of the way, let's get started with today's conversation. Dela chose today's film and has a very interesting, I would call it a thesis, the kids these days might call it a hot take, if you will, but I'd love to set the scene and start discussing this. So Dela, why do you consider this film to be worthy of critical analysis? Why does it speak to you? And what is your main takeaway? Absolutely. So the reason that I initially picked this movie, this film, if you will, is because it is simply my favorite. Um, anyone who knows me would tell you I, it is the first movie that I ask to watch, I recommend to watch. But yes, like Quinn said, there is sort of an underlying subplot to it that I think is worth thinking about uh, and talking about in the context of this show. So a subplot of this is that Leslie Mann's character, Kate, is sort of uh, financially swindled into a problematic scenario where her husband has falsely created these companies and she is the CEO of them because she is not and has not asked critical questions about what's going on in her household's financials. And so this jumps into what I'm gonna call the art of female financial self-defense. As women, we are often told, carry your keys, carry your keys in a parking lot, carry um, pepper spray, take self-defense classes. Have you thought about getting a gun license? But rarely are we 
told and educated about this art of financial self-defense. And oftentimes, women find themselves in households and with partners that know more about their families and their household's financial situation than they do. And inherently, that is not, that is not secure, that is insecure. Um, and so that is, I can speak more to it if you want me to keep going, but um, I noticed that in this film, and I think that that is something we don't, we don't talk about. Before I really plunge in, I'm not an expert on this, but there's a book um, written by June Mays. She actually came to speak at Swanee uh, my freshman year, and it's called A Woman's Guide to Financial Self-Defense, and she wrote it after she had had um, occasion after occasion where she had actually widows coming in and saying, I, I just lost my husband and I don't know how much money I have. I don't know the passwords to get the money out. I don't know if we have an investment account. I don't know what our assets look like. And you put that all together and you are just simply blind in finances and money and money truly makes the world go round. So um, when you don't have access to that information, you are uh, put in a, a risky situation. And so I think this is a lesson, not inherently because this movie is frivolous and meant to be laughed at with gal pals, but this is a lesson in um, financial self-defense, asking questions, you know, making sure that you have uh, an idea about passwords to bank accounts and you have spoken to a financial advisor and this is the hottest take of all, um, that you, if you are a woman, I truly believe you should at all times have an emergency secret fund, a fund that no one knows anything about and that it is yours in the horrifying yet all too often scenario in which you need to leave. You need to have those funds and they need to be rip-roaring and ready to go that you can grab and go. I wish, yes, I literally wish that we had videotaped that because the three of us listening to that, it was speaking, literally our jaws are on the floor. Because I will even say, A, I'm not the most financially literate person in the world. I always joke that I can't do math, which obviously that's not completely true. But I think that that just shows how normalized it's been. I consider myself to be an intelligent young woman. And yet I don't know hardly anything about financial literacy. Even in this movie, when they were talking about the offshore accounts and the companies that he was setting up in her name, I was completely confused. Like, it was good that Cameron Diaz's character was walking Leslie Mann through that, because I felt like as a female young audience member, she was speaking to the audience in that moment and walking us through it too, and being like, this is something that you guys are never really exposed to. I'm a badass lawyer with my like two badass degrees hanging out in every single scene where I'm in my office. Clearly I have my shit together, but I would agree. It's really interesting to see how the husband not only weaponizes his sexuality and the security that that offers Kate, but also financially. It's crazy. No. Yeah. I feel like this is the sort of movie that almost, I don't know. You almost feel the instinct to like laugh at like, Oh, this woman doesn't know what she's doing but then as you're watching it you're like shit I don't know how to do this either and then you're like because like like you said Dayla like we live in a society where like women are not and like I would argue like young people in general but particularly women and people of color are like not 
given the tools to be independent when it comes to financial endeavors. And I just feel like, like, to me, what you're just saying made me think about how like economics and finance and those fields are very male dominated. And I just even think about like how, like my, my handful of friends who were econ majors, um, women who were econ majors at Swanee, like they were always like, like the only one in their class. So it's just pretty, it's pretty interesting. Yeah. And I think that you see that perpetuated further in households where males have been given the majority of this responsibility, sort of not intentionally, it's just assumed that the man is going to manage the finances, pay the taxes, make sure the budgets are in line, all of those things. And I, and, and it is because economics has largely been a male oriented and uh, if not in actuality perceived to be a male oriented field. Um, and it has been easier for, for women, especially historically, I'm going to argue probably that our peers are maybe a little bit more financially literate than our mom's generation and certainly the generation before that. Um, but that, that has been the case for the last for how many years? I do want to give a shout out to my mom, who is an econ major at Harvard. <laughs> a queen. <laughs> she's going to be mad that I did that. But so hot of so your mom. I will say that I grew up in a household that was like, like it was a good example of a woman who is completely in charge of our finances. Um, it's like a two income household, but she's like running the the taxes and shit. I'm swearing too much. Sorry. But, but even still, like, I'm like, oh my God, you need to teach me all of this. Cause I didn't learn it. And like, I am very privileged to like have someone to teach me that. Cause I recognize that like, like you're saying most of our most of the pe- the women of our mom's generation like do not have that information and did not seek that out because it was a male-dominated field. One more thing here, a uh, very interesting take. So I brought this up with my family at one point at a family dinner because I thought this idea of fi- female financial self-defense was particularly interesting. And Nellie, similar to you, my mom is a badass and finance is her thing. And so she certainly knows what's going on in, in that realm. And so I was curious to see what the responses would be. And so I put this idea of a secret emergency fund out on the table. This is a warning to don't do this at home. Um, That was a bad idea for a a lovely family dinner. Oh, so not after this call, I shouldn't go mention it to my family? (laughs) Just know you're in for a fight. Ooh. But, so my dad who is a self-proclaimed feminist, all on board with everything, you know, that we would agree with, was really hostile to this idea of a woman having a secret fund to leave. And it created this really interesting back and forth. You know, he's asking, are you going to start a relationship on this foundation of mistrust? And my response was, certainly no relationship starts in this idea that you're going to have this manipulation and this, you know, weaponization of the financials, but certainly things can devolve into that. And I think the part that is that got him, that the, the part that he was took a step back was when I said, Dad, I understand perhaps why you wouldn't want your wife to have one, but do you want your three daughters to have one? And Dang. that sparked a little bit of a of, of a pause. An interesting dynamic, 
an interesting outcome. And it's interesting how you, when you change that perspective for someone, um, how, you know, something that's that sudden can, can, can help them see the point that you are trying to make. We love. My, uh, my grandma, uh, Daddy Bell, has, has told all of her married grandchildren to have a little bit of cash on the side so that you can get your nails and hair done for your husband. So a little bit differently than what you're thinking, but same idea. The parallels are there, Kate. I love it. <laughs> hey, that's what you got to say it's for. <laughs> Be like, ah, oh, it's just for my nails. <laughs> Actually, like, I can no, like, it's get for when I leave you. That at Thanksgiving because, like, you know, we have this idea, like, when you get married, everything is, you know, together. And then my cousin, who is two grades below me, but probably the smartest um, grandchild in their family, like, chemistry major, like, super bright, was like, well, when I have my own job, and I'm going to spend my money how I want to spend it. So if I want to like treat myself to something, I'll do it. And then her sister was like, no, you have to like respect your husband and, you know, make those decisions together. And then of course I side with my younger cousin. I'm like, well, she makes most of the money. She can do what she wants with that. Anyways, understandably, we had a argument like your family did. <laughs> Okay, well, that's, like, a great way to start. I'm wide awake. I have my listening ears on. My mind has been blown. So I'm ready to carry this energy into the rest of the conversation. And as we're talking about broadening our perspectives and our personal perceptions, especially in the context of this movie, this is something that author Justin Chang wrote in a review of The Other Woman in Variety. And he said, quote, there's room to argue over whether the other woman is ultimately a femme-empowering celebration of decency and monogamy or a hopelessly retrograde portrait of scheming, backbiting women incapable of defining themselves apart from a man, even if it's a man they happen to despise, end quote. So this is a sentiment that I struggled with throughout the film, because although these three women are attempting to assert their respective independence, in the end, like quite literally in the end, as we see in the closing shot when Kate Upton is married to Cameron Diaz's dad and Cameron Diaz is pregnant with a baby. And then Leslie Mann's character is like out being successful, but they make a point to say that she's now like linked up and doing business with the husband's male business partner, which is just so pointless to me. It always circles back to a man. And this is one of only... Um, a few problematic issues of the film. There were also um, issues with sexist stereotypes, transphobic humor, lack of diversity, and granted this film was made in 2014, so I'm not excusing that behavior, but I do think that post Me Too movement were a little more attuned to looking for these kinds of things and calling them out. But yeah, what did you guys think overall? Did you walk away feeling like these three women were empowered in who they were? Or was it just another representation of a male director having women act catty and with like this faux sense of empowerment? I mean, I, I audibly groaned when I saw Kate Upton married to Cameron Diaz's dad. I'm like, are you serious? This is like the, the head cliche that you could have done. Um, 
because, you know, he's notorious for dating younger, hot women. He's been married, what, four or five times? And I'm just like, why did you have to add that? That honestly kind of ruined the movie for me. And then the hot brother that Cameron Diaz marries, like, you know what? It was fine. It was cute. It could have definitely done without. Like, if they had just taken him out of the movie, it would have not made a difference to me. Um, I find it interesting that she's, like, pregnant at the end of the movie because she never expressed any interest in wanting to have kids or get... Well, she expressed wanting to, like, find a nice guy, which she did, but she never was like, I want to have a nice guy and get married and have kids. And then all of a sudden she's pregnant. I was, I was confused. So to that end, like, that was the cliche and, like, the, the, the stereotype of ending the movie with a man that really bothered me. Because the movie, I think, could have ended on such a lighter note. I have three major thoughts on the end. Well, actually, okay. One is related to Kate Upton, which I will like put to the side for now. The second one is that when Diana Ross's I'm Coming Out was playing, I was like, yes, I love the song. But then I realized they changed it and then Iggy Azalea was in it. I know. I was pissed. Nicki Minaj is in the movie. Put Nicki Minaj in the song. I know. I had that same thought. She's the queen of rap. She tells us in every song. Right. And also like, I could criticize Nicki Minaj, too, but I was just like, okay, first of all, she's the only person of color in this movie, yes, and she- She's the only person of color in this movie with a right, speaking- exactly, and she, and then, like, it is just, I, I think it is complete insult to then, one, remake Diana Ross's song- to take out the lyrics I'm coming out, even though that, because that song is a banger. Second of all, put Iggy Azalea in it when Nicki Minaj is right there to be in it. So that was problematic, and also Iggy Azalea is problematic. And then, I don't remember what my third thought was. Yeah, maybe my, it was both, yay, Diana Ross, ew, Iggy Azalea, and then, okay, back to the Kate Upton thing. So I, I literally was like, I knew it when I saw that she ended up with the dad. I was pissed. Because as we've talked about in previous episodes, like, I I think about this ever since I read that article from someone about someone great, where endings could look different depending on who is in charge of producing um, the film. So essentially, if perhaps if this movie had been made on Netflix, it would have had more of a feminist French or like female friendship oriented ending, as opposed to like, here are all the men that like they ended up with, whether it's in a business relationship or a romantic relationship so that was frustrating and for me too I think it totally backpedaled on the progress that the movie does especially in terms of encouraging you to love Kate Upton's character like for me okay I'm gonna be vulnerable about my problematic past I really did not like Kate Upton growing up because I have an ex-boyfriend who is obsessed with her and I was like no I don't want to be compared to Kate Upton and also like she's a Sports Illustrated super, like, on this cover of Sports Illustrated, and just, I was like, this isn't, but I also never took the time to, like, understand her as a person. I I only ever understood her as a body, the way that men tend to look at her, so that in itself is also problematic, but I think this movie does a good job of, like, kind of setting that stereotype at the beginning, and then being like, no, this is, like, a person, and, like, she's contributing to these female friendships, and she's not just, like, I don't know, like, a body, and so, and then I think when Kate Upton ends up with the dad, like, yes, perhaps they do have, like, a loving and beautiful relationship, but also I'm just kind of, like, 
this really didn't need to happen for Kate Upton. Like, does, like I just, I wanted to believe that her character, Amber, I should be talking about her from, about by her character's name. After getting to know that character, like, I didn't feel like she would end up with that dad. I thought based on, like, the typical Hollywood production of a movie she would, I was like, I knew she was going to end up with it. Also, they allude to it very early on in the film. Yeah, that just disappointed me because I was like, oh my gosh, a character that is portrayed by Kate Upton that I really enjoy. And I think it's genius to put her in it because she's like every boy's fantasy and all women hate her. But then you feel guilty for hating her and that's anti-feminist. And I think that ending was trash. On the ending, though, I agree that it, I think it could have cut at Mark getting punched in the face. Yes. It could have been cut right there and I... I wouldn't have known the difference. The last three sections add nothing. They are not female empowering. They are not, like, they don't add to the plot. They don't, um, so in that realm, I 100% agree with that. I will say, I kind of disagree with your point, Nellie, about the way that they portrayed Amber, because I was actually really frustrated by it, and I thought back on that article from Someone Great as well, when the writer and director Jennifer Caton Robinson is talking about how in her movie, which also portrays three women who it's important to know are of three diverse backgrounds, they each represent different racial backgrounds, different socioeconomic statuses, um, different sexual identities, so inherently it's already a little bit more intersectional, a lot more intersectional, that film is a lot more intersectional, but I thought about her quote when she was like, I feel like I watch a lot of TV and movies where I see women and I'm told that they're all best friends, but I don't believe them. Like, I think that they genuinely hate each other. And that's something that she was trying to correct in her film. Oh. They didn't get that sense with Kate and Carly. It seemed like they were completely kind of like yin and yang in super ridiculous ways. And I really enjoyed seeing their dynamic play out on screen. But I felt like Amber got the short end of the stick through the end because it was always there's like a quote where it's like the lawyer the wife and the boobs or like you know we as an audience are invited to sexualize her and the only way that we get to know her in the beginning is from her body when we're enacting this inherently male gaze upon her like jogging down the beach and I think that that was supposed to be a moment that was funny and kind of subverting our expectations because it's like the two women chasing after her are kind of us as the audience in that moment like wanting to take her down but I didn't see it I didn't see like a character shift at all like even when they were wearing the binoculars and this was actually a funny moment but Amber stands up and is like I saw a dolphin like that was funny but also like simply does not do much for her character but the thing that I found the hardest to get over throughout this film and again 2014 it's sad that there's I can say like six years ago, like that's, that seems old now, but I mean, a lot of things have become outdated in today's current political climate, but I really had a hard time getting past the transphobia, um, especially when they're, when Kate was putting hormones into Mark smoothies and things, because this idea that being, becoming feminized is like the worst possible thing that they could do is A, just, I mean, enabling and reinforcing ideals of the patriarchy, but it's also othering trans folks Mm -hmm. because we don't have a representation of a transgender person on the screen. So again, it's like, there's this notion in pop culture where it's like, if you're trans, like think of like Tootsie starring Dustin Hoffman or like Mrs. Doubtfire. It's like, 
trans experiences are so often aligned with like drag that I think that it's really dangerous to make it a the butt of a joke and like a climate where we don't see a lot of trans characters, especially not up until this point in pop culture at all. And then when Amber's talking to Mark and is like, oh, I wanna have a threesome, blah, blah, blah. And a man dressed as a woman comes in and it's supposed to be played for laughs. But again, as an audience member and as a WGS gal, I was standing there like, am I supposed to be laughing at this person because they they seem to identify as a woman or is it a joke that they're dressed as a woman do they really perceive themselves as male like it was it was a really big distraction for me and I think that where I am in my feminism now and this is something we've talked about and I think that we all could probably agree with like we all consider ourselves to be intersectional feminists so although I really wanted to root for these women at the end of the film they did some really shady shit and like it's kind of hard to excuse. Yeah, absolutely. It is interesting to watch your favorite movie that you have only ever watched in a frivolous gal pal sleepover situation and then be asked to look at it from a feminist perspective. And certainly all the things that we've talked about so far, I have been and was acutely aware of watching um, and knew that we were going to talk about them and sort of immediately as I consider myself an intersectional feminist, saying, wow, I just asked these other intersectional feminists to critically ad- look at my favorite film, which has is apparently super problematic. Um, and so I think it is important, and um, Kate talked about this when you guys did Legally Blonde, but it is, um, can also be important to take this film, to take something that is silly and be able to identify these themes, these trends, these changes from 2014 to now, and how valuable that actually can be. Dela, I completely agree. Um, I think actually what what has both like energized me, but also drained me in a certain capacity is that all of these films that we've watched for the most part are things that I watched before and watched purely with like a consumer's eye, as opposed to thinking of watching it with a critical eye. I think that that's something I love about the podcast, but it's hard because you watch things and you're like, oh my God, this is a movie I love. Yeah, I, I even think about how the the transphobia that exists in this movie exists in a lot of its peers of movies. You know, like a lot of the movies of its time, you'll see very similar jokes. And I think while to us, like we watch it and we're like, this is obviously transphobic. I think that like to the non- self-proclaimed intersectional feminist eye they'll be like oh what's wrong with this like what's wrong it's like and I think it's just it goes into kind of the 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 work and the unlearning that we've talked about so much um particularly in this time of like ways that we're contributing to the the problem and I don't know that contributing to the problem is necessarily consuming these movies but it's maybe watching them and not thinking critically about them and engaging of course engaging in the activity that they do Yeah, and I think there are also, like, a lot of pure movies, as you said, Nellie, like, movies that fall into this category that I think have no redeeming qualities, watching them a second time with a critical eye, like, um, How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days, I still have yet to bring myself to watch it again after realizing it's this cool girl making herself like a feminized version of her 
self to drive away a man. Um, I just like haven't been able to get over that yet and enjoy the film. But I think this film, while it had problematic issues at the core, like it is a female friendship. I, I truly believed in the friendship and like found myself enjoying it. And also like, I think a lot of times when a woman finds herself being cheated on, it's a lot of the time she like hates on the other woman in this situation. Yet here we see three of them like band together, creating a lasting friendship and, you know, ruining a man in a process. And we always love that. This is random, but I read somewhere today that Kate Hudson's character, Andy, and How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days, is 23, has a master's and her own magazine column. That gave me Rosacea. I'm 22. You don't watch it because it's so unrealistic. That woman does not exist. T. Thanks for coming to my TED talk, but like How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days is like the most fictional movie I've ever seen in my life, even more than Star Wars. <laughs> Something that I thought that we would touch on sooner than we have um, is the toxic masculinity that we see um, and the white toxic masculinity, both in Mark and also in um, Carly's dad. This idea that women are things to be conquered, that women are simply sub subversive. Kate tells us when she's at the bar with Carly that She's given up her job. She's given up the idea of a family. She, she's joined Team King for his marathon endeavors. That she's given up all of her identity and he's asked her to give up her entire identity for him. I'm curious to get what your perspective is on that and what sort of more nuanced things you all with a fresh eye pulled out from that. So I think that they did a good job in portraying Mark and that I literally wanted to punch him in the face at all times. And I wrote in my notes and then deleted it. I was like, this man deserves an Oscar for his poop scenes. Like when he walks through the door and is like, I'm going to poop my pants. But <laughs> I will also say the, per the man that I found to be the most problematic just because he wasn't outwardly portrayed to be problematic. Like we're supposed to think that he's like this great dude was Kate's brother. I don't even know his name. Lady Gaga's fiance. Sir, you missed out. Ex-fiance, I should say. How Chicago Fire treating you. Anywho, when he, when Carly falls asleep in his bed and he's like, yeah, I created a pillow fort. And she's like, so I kept trying to get naked and like smooch you? And he's like, yeah, you were really testing like my, like my willpower. And I was like, what? The like, why did, I get that what she was doing, what she was doing was incredibly problematic. Like, she was throwing herself onto this man that was not trying to return those advances. That is so problematic in and of itself. However, the fact that then the next day, instead of it being played off of, like, hey, this made me uncomfortable, and that's not how you should, like, treat another person, it was, again, kind of played off as toxic masculinity to be like, oh, well, all boys want this attention. Like, they would love if a woman came in and was, like, super drunk and naked. And the fact that he didn't take advantage of it shows what a good guy he is and also but also he still liked it like he was still interested and like super flattered and that's kind of like the genesis of their sexual relationship why do we give men credit for not assaulting people exactly literally unacceptable that you are a good guy because you did that is the bare minimum that is the bare minimum and the movie like frames it so that you're supposed to 
that's supposed to make you like him more and like root for them as a couple and I'm like no this doesn't make me want them to be a couple (laughs) at all because I mean it's the classic thing where it's like roles reversed if I was a woman and I am sober and a man comes into my room bucky naked and he's like let's smooch I would be like get your ass right on out of here like I feel threatened I do not feel comfortable and I think that a, I just don't think that scene should have existed. Like, it wasn't funny or cool or good or anything. Like, simply did not. It's, like, right up there with the dog turd scene with me. Why did we pay for the CGI? Why was that in the budget? However, this scene for me, I was like, A, it's unnecessary. But B, you could, per- that could be a, like, learning moment where it could be normalizing. Like, hey, I'm a dude and I felt really uncomfortable in this situation. Or just being nice and not expecting anything from it because you're doing, again, the bare minimum. So that made me sweaty, and he has really pretty eyes. Thank you. Um, Dayla, kind of back to the point that you made earlier, kind of with the ways in which Kate had rid all of her life outside of Mark. For me, when when she was doing all of that, like, as someone who has... I'd like to think of good knowledge of like red flags of like domestic violence. For me, I was like, these are like things where like, if you hear that anyone has, like if people, if the, as someone's partner is encouraging them to like cut their friends out or like prioritize simply them, like these are things that you're like, nope, that is not a healthy relationship. So like, obviously in multiple capacities, that's not, but for me, those were like huge red flags when she was saying that. And I was kind of like, this woman doesn't have a support system other than Carly. And in that case, like, it's, like, barely. But then also just kind of the end scene, what should be the end scene, not the actual end, but just kind of when they're really, like, owning him and telling him all the things they did and how he's screwed in terms of money. He's just completely gaslighting that, like, entire scene and being, like, 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 we know the definition of gaslighting, but it's just, it's just complete trash. And I was just, like, no. I do have, I have, I have a fun question if we think yeah. about it. Yeah, That's awesome. do it. Okay, so everything we've talked about, there's problematic things, there are fun things, but which of the characters do you like the most or you think you relate the most to and why? Okay, this is funny because I Snapchatted Dayla yesterday being like, oh my gosh, Carly and Kate are you and me. Because in my mind, Dayla literally has 500 million things together. And so I was like, she's Carly and I'm the woman who would show up to her house with my dog and like he would poop on her floor. Like that just made sense to me. And Dayla was like, oh yeah, I'm totally Kate. And I was like, does that mean she thinks I'm Carly? which I'm simply not. Honestly, the character that I relate to most in this film probably is the dog. Um, (laughs) It's a star. It's a scene stealer. It doesn't have any lines, but you know what? It holds its own. I love that you're referring to him as it. What is it? I don't remember thunder or something. Thunder. 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 Oh yeah, I'm thunder. <laughs> Carly got like smacked by his balls in the car. <laughs> I take it all back immediately. Um, I have an answer, just purely based on. Okay, so so essentially, I identify with Kate 
particularly at, in the beach scene, just with the fact that, like, the, the, like, two other girls have, like, these just, like, nice, like, and just in general, in terms of fashion, just, like, a nice, like, white top on, and then she has, like, a rash guard and, like, a, like, bucket hat or whatever, like, whatever hat she was wearing. I was just, like, yes, queen. I feel like that fits the vibe of the fact that I showed up in capris to pre on my first day of Swanee, <laughs> and also that I used to wear, to- <laughs> and also the fact that I used to wear Toms to frat parties, so I feel <laughs> that I am Kate. I'd like to think that I can, I have the potential to evolve into a Carly, but I think that at my core, I'm a Kate. Toms. Mm. Frat Toms. Toms, sponsor us if you're listening. I know it sounds like I'm digging on you. You're my one true love. So, um, the, the character that I strive to be is definitely Carly. Like, I just love the idea of a boss bitch lawyer who has a big big uh, apartment and a big big office with like glass windows and everything like down to the t that's like my dream goal but i don't want to be a lawyer don't want to go to law school so can't do that um but i think the character that i relate most to is Nicki minaj's character um, because I like to give my friends bad advice, being like, what, you don't think you could, like, be with a married man? You don't think you could take her? Also, this is just a side hustle, my job. Like, you know, I just, I relate to that character, but I want to be Carly. Ayla, how about you? I am very flattered that Quinn thinks I'm Carly. I think I understand where the outside perspective might see that of me, but when I watch the film... Every time I see, like, the scene where Kate is in her wedding dress, like, sobbing by herself, unfortunately, I reserve my, this is vulnerable, my, my, like, most vulnerable emotional moments to, like, when I am by myself. Like, other people don't get to see that. And so, um, I, like, see snippets of that when she's in the grocery store and she's, like, shopping for prosciutto and, um, like, having this, like, crisis, but, like, internally. Um, I, like, unfortunately relate to that part of her character um so there are pieces of of that I I relate to and then I do see you know where people would look at me and be like oh you 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 got it together you're like Carly but I don't know maybe we all have a little bit of Kate in us I feel like I resonated with the scene where she's having like a tantrum in Carly's office like very early on and she's just like breaking down and I was like yeah (laughs) that's the crying in public Kate that I I resonate with her (laughs) I did forget about that scene that is a very public display of emotion yeah but maybe I identify with the public and you identify with the private I'm not really a private crier I'm very much a public crier (laughs) my co-star told me two days ago not to separate the private and the public Wait, Quinn, my co-star today, we can take this out. My co-star today says, make a distinction between your social identity and your private self today. That's like the same thing. What is up with that? We're just in sync, man. I was going to say that I relate to Kate when she gets blackout drunk after she finds out her husband is cheating on her. Yeah. That's what I relate to. And also something I'm like, ugh, Kate, like, you're so much better than him. Leave him. You know, I think that... She can't because she has no money. True. And I think we all wish, like, we, if we were in that position, we would react to, like, Carly and just, like, drop him and not talk to him. But I'm sure all of us have that Kate in us that are, like, you know, wanting to hold on to something, like, special and 
vulnerable. There is a list of like eight reasons why people don't leave abusive or bad relationships. And some of them are things like saving face, um, doing it for the family, the expectations that you hold things together. One of them is like financial responsibilities. But I think the idea is when I was looking into this, that there would be like one reason that people don't leave. But there are lots of reasons, reasons that like we cannot even fathom, reasons that are simply you cannot fathom when you are falling in love with someone. And so, yeah, this idea that you would just be able to like, you know, be like, screw you for cheating on me and pick up and leave is like, I would love, I would love to be able to say like, we could all do that. But the difference is that like, we can't. It's like, would be a lot to ask. I think that that is like the perfect note for us to wrap up on. Um, thank you, Dela, for like your amazing brain. And just for being here and your amazing personhood, not just your brain. We're both glad to be here. (laughs) (laughs) I just like can't even like, I think that your thesis on this is so brilliant and I'm just grateful for it because I think it is like one of the redeeming qualities of, but it just encourages us to think about this alternative scenario where they wouldn't have to jump through all these hoops if Kate had been financially literate. On that note, we're going to be playing some action items. So mine actually is kind of inspired by Dela's thesis, and it is Black Femme. Um, And I'm just going to read their, like, about us description. Um, So here it is, quote, we are a radically feminist nonprofit organization that focuses on giving girls of color the confidence, skills, and resources to build and sustain wealth through collaborative school partnerships and engaging integrative educational model and a focus on intersectional feminism, we empower underserved communities to break the intergenerational cycle of poverty. Black Femme currently serves nearly 15,000 students nationwide across 12 states, end quote. So I encourage y'all, if you have the funds to donate and fund the movement. Um, And if you don't, just like, at least check out the website and learn more about it and think about ways to get involved or get your state involved or your local area involved. So the organization that I'd like to plug this week, because I talked in the beginning about how I don't know how to do math, um, which is kind of true. And the first time I ever took computer science or had anything like that offered to me was when I was a freshman in college at a small liberal arts private university. So already that's like kind of posh. And so I've been reflecting on that recently and thinking about how if that was my only access and entry point into the STEM field, what must that look like for people who are in underrepresented communities? So I would like to plug Black Girls Code, that's blackgirlscode.com. And their vision is to increase the number of women of color in the digital space by empowering girls of color ages seven to 17 to become innovators in STEM fields, leaders in their communities and builders of their own futures through exposure to computer science and technology, which I just think is the coolest thing ever. They're trying to train 1 million girls by 2040, which I think is a super awesome goal. So please go check them out. You can donate, you can buy merch from them, you can get involved. Again, that's blackgirlscode.com. And my resource for this week is dearblackwomanproject.com. And it's kind of resources in a resource of itself. You can go and find a therapist or a crisis hotline. Um, You can find mind-body resources. 
and they have podcasts and reading suggestions. But what I really love about um, Dear Black Woman is that you can sign up to get a daily affirmation text from them, which I think is just super like happy and needed um, in 2020. It's kind of been a rough year. So definitely check them out. And then also, if you live in Alabama, please donate to Doug Jones's Senate campaign. He's running against Tommy Tuberville, who is a past football coach and has never been in politics in his life and will simply just have allegiance towards Donald Trump. And Doug Jones is a great bipartisan politician. So please go donate to him. Also, Tommy Tuberville is a fake name. Thank you. Quinn did warn me that this was going to be asked of me at the end. So I did a little bit of thinking on kind of what my thesis was at the beginning here. Um, similar to what I think Nellie and Quinn and, and Pate did. Um, but the organization I'm going to plug is called One Love. Um, it first came across my radar um, when actually my sorority, Big Strat Girl, joined this movement. But um, it is about teaching young people and adolescents about love. And we're not, we don't talk about love a lot. It's something that we see as being very private. Um, but One Love looks to educate young people on healthy and unhealthy relationships. If you go to their website, joinonelove.org, there are um, teaching materials called Relationships 101. Um, there are action items, there are ways to get involved, um, and certainly ways to donate. And um, when we talk about things that are unhealthy and healthy, I want to remind everyone that you can be a, an agent. You are an autonomous agent of your own security. And so take those steps um, to educate yourself on what is a healthy and unhealthy relationship, especially when it comes to financial literacy, um, and visit onelove.org. Uh, give them a look. Dayla, do you want to close this out with a quote? There's a scene in the middle of the movie where Carly has just found out that Mark, the love of her life, has a wife. And she comes in and tears up papers and tears up these flowers. Nicki Minaj comes in and is like talking her off the cliff. And when she proclaim, when Carly proclaims, I cannot be with a married man, Nicki Minaj says, I'm going to leave and I'll leave you with this. My mother always said, Selfish people live longer. Oscar. Thank you so much, Dela. We love you. Thank you, guys. ASMR. This has been Feminist Feeds and Quarantine Queens.